Biology is the study of living organisms. It explores how they exist, how they function, how they interact with this world, with the environment. And our series, we've, on James, we've entitled The Biology of Faith because it's really an examination of how we live our faith. It's not necessarily exploring all of the, all of the origins or even the beginning points of um, coming to faith in Christ. It's talking about what it looks like in practice or in living it out. And sometimes that can be a bit confusing, especially when it comes to an understanding of the difference or the distinction between faith that we place in God in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross and then the works that we do for God. They're interrelated, but they are distinct. And and one of the best ways that I know to, to try to help us understand that distinction, and then especially to help us apply what James is talking about here today is to describe the difference between a wedding and a marriage. Now, when you have a wedding, it changes your legal status. On December 30th, 1983, somehow, I don't know, I don't know how I convinced her of this, but Becky said yes and married me. She said, I do, and we became fully 100% married. We were just as married on day one as we are today, which is on day 12,227. Happy anniversary. Yes. We're not more married than we were on day one, but our union is different. Our understanding and our love for each other is incredibly deeper. Our lives are more connected. In fact, and this is kind of scary, at least on one side, we've become more like each other. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry I've done that to you. You know, she knows all my bad jokes before I say them and could say them for me. But fortunately, she still allows me that opportunity to say all of my bad jokes. Um... Because she loves me. But there's a difference between a wedding and a marriage. The same is true in our life spiritually. We are called the bride of Christ. And ultimately, when you or I place our trust in Jesus Christ, we become adopted. Now, these, these terms are, there's a lot of different ways to describe something that's indescribable. And that's, that's why it's a lot of terms. We're adopted into the family of God. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are his child. That's what the scripture tells us. It it indicates that. In fact, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, listen to what it says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we're adopted into Christ, much like, and so we legally, our status is we belong to God. But living in union with God, living as his son, living as his daughter, is something that develops over time. And there are barriers that keep us from experiencing the intimacy God wants us to have. 
This is what James is addressing. He's not saying, don't do these things because they take away your salvation. He's saying these things interfere with your intimacy and enjoying your union in Jesus Christ. Last week, as we explored the war within, he's telling us that these, bat, these desires that war within your own heart and in your own life, they keep you from experiencing the connection, the unity with God that he has designed for you to experience. So if you're here today and you're, you're saying, you know, I trusted Christ. I know I'm a believer. I know I'm a Christian. I was born again. But it seems like there's something missing. The good news for you is this. What is missing is absolutely available to you. You are designed to live so connected, so unified to Christ that you sense his life in you and flowing out of you. That's the union he wants us to have. What keeps us from experiencing that is our own desires, our own selfishness, our own pride. And as those are exposed and stripped away, we draw closer and closer to the Lord. And so some of the things that are exposed when, when we see the light of Scripture are uncomfortable, but you need to understand the reason they're uncomfortable is so you can move it out of the way. The Holy Spirit can draw you closer to God, and He will draw closer to you. Let's back up in, in James just one verse to verse 4, or two verses, I guess, to verse 4. He says this, James is, is calling us closer to Christ to live out our union with him. That's the context of everything in this letter. And he says this, you adulterous or faithless people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now that's the beginning point. We need to see that when there's conflict, just like in a, in a, a marriage, you know, if I'm in conflict with my wife, chances are our union is not going to feel very intimate and close or even enjoyable. If I'm doing things that are an offense to my wife, it's going to put a barrier in every aspect of our relationship. The exact same thing is true with your relationship with God. But when those things are removed and I demonstrate my faithfulness to her, our relationship is stronger. That's what's happening here. And we need to understand God desires you. He wants you. He wants you to come close. And the incredible promise that we, we looked at some last week and we're going to expand on this week is this. In the midst of exposing our lust, our pride, our covetousness, all the things that are in us that are ugly, there is an incredible statement. In fact, sometimes the greatest promises in all the scriptures start with these two amazing words, but God. But God. And then it says, gives more grace. That's the good news for you and I all the time. No matter how bad things get, no matter how ugly they are, it says, 
but God gives more grace. So I want you to hold on to three truths today. Number one is simply this. Grace is greater than blank. You need to know that. I need to know that. We need to know that God's grace is greater than the things that we face. Here in this chapter, James is saying, I know the things that are inside of you because he recognizes the things that are inside himself, the quarrels, the disputes, the conflicting desires inside of him, the sin that he commits. But his hope is in, but God gives more grace. The bad news is, if we're dead honest, we're a lot worse than we think we are, or at least than we pretend to be. But the good news is God's grace is greater. So here's where I want you to, there's a blank there in your sermon notes. And what is it that you really deep down need to know that God's grace is greater than in your life today? Maybe there's a habitual sin you're wrestling with. You need to know God's grace is greater than that sin. Maybe there's brokenness in your life. Maybe there's emptiness. Maybe you feel like, God, I don't even know if you're there. God's grace is greater than your doubts. It's greater than your emptiness, than your loneliness, than your failure. God's grace is greater than your fear. It's greater than your need. It's greater than our sin. That's a truth we need to hold on to. So whatever it is that comes to mind that you need to know, God, Can you really fix this problem? You need to write that down there and begin praying it and saying, Lord, it says that your grace is greater than this. Help me to believe that and to live accordingly. That's the first great truth. God's grace is greater. The second great truth is simply this. Grace always flows downhill. Now, that's incredibly important to remember because the only way to receive God's grace is to humble ourselves. If I'm placing myself on a platform, I cannot expect God to fill me with his grace. If I'm lifting myself up in pride, God's grace is going to go right around me. What you want to picture is standing next to an enormous waterfall. Maybe it's Victoria Falls, which is the, the largest waterfall in the world. Maybe it's, for those of you who are from North America, maybe it's Niagara Falls, or there's a falls that you can picture from your home country. And they're amazing in their beauty and their power. That's God's grace flowing down. But you have to step into it, and to do that, you have to be underneath the falls. If you're trying to place yourself up on the cliff, saying, look at me, God's grace is not going to flow into your heart and into your life. That's the second great truth. The gravity of grace only flows into humble, broken hearts. There's a beautiful promise in the book of Micah that talks about our heart of our God. Listen to what it says. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. 
He will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot and he will cast all of your sins into the depths of the sea. Now, I love that picture because in my mind, I see that waterfall where God has washed his grace over me and he's taken my sin and he's carried it out to sea and buried it at the bottom of the ocean of grace where it can never, ever be found again. That's how much God loves us. But I need to step into the waterfall of faith. The third truth is this, and that is that honest humility opens up our hearts to receive God's grace and opens up the floodgates of God's grace into our lives. When we humble ourselves, the Lord has promised he will lift us up into his presence. Doesn't mean that you're going to get everything that you want and that all of a sudden you're going to be successful and prosperous. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about lifting us up into his presence and goodness. Now, in the midst of this, we see from James that there's a problem that's keeping us from experiencing this overflowing waterfall of grace into our hearts and lives. And the problem is pride. Because your pride and my pride ultimately is lifting up an altar to ourselves and choosing to worship there. We need to see why God is jealous for our hearts and why he sees pride as such an opposition to our lives spiritually. Pride is self-exaltation. It is putting ourselves on God's throne and seeking to take his rightful place. James wants you and I, as he's writing here to this group of believers and writing to us, he wants us to be free from our pride, our self-sufficiency, and our self-worship. And so he exposes the sin in our own hearts so that we can be refreshed. Well, let's look at these symptoms of pride, of self-exaltation. Because this is a theme throughout this whole chapter. He began the chapter in verse 1 by saying, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The battle between believers comes from the war within. So if you're in conflict with another person, you need to stop looking at what they're doing and allow the Holy Spirit to examine your own heart. To see what competing desires in your own heart are causing friction. And then James is going to give us some very practical instruction about how we are to respond in that conflict. He says in verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Literally, this command is do not speak down on one another or do not speak against one another. Now, If we're honest, we have a tendency to glance over this and we think that maybe it only deals with slander. Slander is saying something that is untrue about someone in order to tear them down. But we have a tendency to build up in our own heart and life to think, well, as long as what I'm saying is true, or at least I think it's true, it's okay to say that about person X. But that's not what James says. 
he's very clear. He says, do not speak down on that person, on that brother or sister in Christ. Whether it's true or whether it's false doesn't matter. This is my command because you need to remember who they are. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but maybe um, you, have, you have some friendships, some relationships, and maybe they, in, in those friendships, they have some children, and maybe they're a little bit wild, a little crazy. Anybody, if you have any, don't raise your hands because people will try to figure out who your friend is that has wild children. Um, but let's just picture that in our mind. Now, if, if they have children that are a little rambunctious and overzealous or whatever, probably the worst thing that you could ever do for your friendship and your relationship is to talk badly about their children, even if it's true, right? Because they're going to come to their defense. Well, guess what? God loves his children, each one of us. And when we speak against one of his kids, it does not make God the Father happy. Because he knows all of our faults, all of my faults, all of your faults, all of our sin, and he loves us anyway, and he says, no, they're mine. So don't speak against them because they belong to me. So here James is telling us that we need to speak in a way that builds others up. Because when we speak evil of other believers, whether it's true or false, we are tearing down God's kids. This is incredibly serious because it limits our intimacy with God. It puts up a wall between us and God and it causes weakness within the church so that our witness to the world around us does not see that we love one another but sees instead the conflict within the church. And understand, this is an area that the enemy does his best to cause division and friction. But if we want to grow close and live in union with Christ, we need to follow these instructions. And understand that what he is saying is pointing to a problem in our own heart. You see, speaking down on others is a sign of a self-centered heart. Pride presumes that we are something we are not. Pride presumes that we are qualified to speak against another person who belongs to God. Evil speaking is a non-redemptive criticism. It wishes to be heard but does nothing to restore. It sets oneself up as the authority rather than God. And ultimately, James is going to point us to, to help us see where this is headed He said, speaking against other believers attempts to take over God's grace as it works in their lives. When we speak down on one another, we're assuming that God's not at work in their heart and in their life, transforming them. That his grace isn't working inside of them to draw them closer and make them more like his son, Jesus. So James says in verse 11, Do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The point he's making here is when we condemn others with our words and in our heart, we are saying we are the law. 
We know what is right. We know what is best. We know what they should be doing. And so we become the law instead of God and his word. What is more, we take on the role of judge. His second argument takes it a little bit further, and he says that a critical spirit ultimately means that we are seeking to take not only the authority, but ultimately God's place as judge. So secondly, judging others is a sign of self-righteous arrogance. We're attempting to take God's authority over the actions of others. The great danger sign in our heart is when we start judging other people's motives. And this is something all of us do. We begin to assume that the reason this person is doing this is because of blank. And the truth is, we rarely even understand our own motives. How could we possibly understand the conflicting motives in the heart of another person? Instead, we need to entrust that to God, just as we entrust ourselves to him. Because when we do not, we are seeking to take God's place. And God here in his word is telling us just how dangerous that is. It's an idolatry of a heart where we're putting ourselves on the throne, on the altar to be worshiped in God's place. It's serious. The altar of self-worship and pride ultimately becomes a prison that keeps us from drawing close to God. And so if you don't feel an intimacy with God right now, you feel like he's, he's far away, you need to look at your desires, see what is conflicted within you, and you need to look at your conflict and see, Lord, is there some area where I've been judging other people that is keeping me from drawing close to you? And if you see it, as his Holy Spirit reveals that, confess it. Turn from it. And where there needs to be reconciliation, go and ask for forgiveness. Here's the thing. If you were to get married, have a wedding, and then never live together, you would miss the whole point. Right? It's kind of the whole idea is to be together. If we come to faith in Jesus Christ, but we don't live together in union, in accordance with the things he tells us in his, in his word, we're missing the whole point. And it's no wonder our lives are weak and we're missing the joy that God intends for us to have in our relationship. So let down your pride. Say, Lord, I want you more than I want to be thought of as being right or as an authority. The battle between comes from the war within and we must submit ourselves to God. We need to take an honest look at our own hearts, our own weaknesses, and then bow down before the Lord, yielding all that we are, our dreams, our future, our pride, everything to Him. And then we'll draw close. God has set us free. In fact, listen really quickly um, to Ephesians, excuse me, Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And what he's saying is that, that the way to draw closer 
in your freedom and closer to experience the joy God has for you is to love others, not to have conflict with them. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. God is writing these things so that we'll understand the danger of our conflict. And then James goes a little bit farther and he adds one more dynamic to it. It's not only the conflict within us that reveals our pride, but our planning can reveal our pride as well. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 13 of James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows to do the right thing but fails to do it, for him it is sin. What he's calling us to do here is to recognize that self-planning to the exclusion of God's purpose and will in our life is a sign of self-worshipping pride. Well, we want God to bless our plans rather than to enter in on his. There's a great statement, a, a story that comes from the United States Civil War where Abraham Lincoln, the president during that time, was meeting with several pastors and they were praying for the country. And one of the pastors said to Abraham Lincoln, he said, we need to pray that God is on our side. And Abraham Lincoln said, no, that is not what we should pray. We need to pray that we are on God's side so that we will accomplish his will and his purpose. The same is true in our own life, in our planning, in our purposes. He's not saying we shouldn't make plans. He's saying that our plans need to be first submitted to the will of God and asking, Lord, what do you want from me? What is your plan and purpose for my life? Because his plans will be carried out. So does God rule your calendar? Does he rule your plans and your desires? And specifically, he's talking about your plan for your life um, in a business sense. Are you submitting what your career is, what your financial goals are? Are you putting all of those things into the hand of God and saying, Lord, I want your will first and foremost? When we do that, it sets us free because God is the supplier of all our needs and your life can become an amazing adventure. One of the best things you can do is to begin each day simply saying, Lord, what would you like to do today? Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to talk to? Who do you want me to serve and encounter? How do, we want, how do you want me to live for you this day? When you do that day after day, your life will take on an expectation of seeing how God is going to show up in the midst of your work. And I realize in, in our careers, we have things that we need to accomplish. He knows that. He's placed you there. He's going to give you the abilities to be able to carry out your job and do it in a way where you're fulfilling the very purpose that he has for you there. But it begins by us submitting our hearts to him and to remember that our life is a mist 
That's why the psalmist tells us, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to your wisdom. We need to remember how brief life is. Jesus said something similar when he said in Matthew 6, 4, not to worry about tomorrow. He was not rejecting the importance of planning. In fact, sometimes worrying about tomorrow is an indication that we haven't made proper plans. We've not gone to the Lord and, and, and sought his wisdom to begin with. But he's saying, ultimately, we submit them all to the Lord and asking him to deal with them. Well, that reveals what our hearts, areas that can separate us from God, where our pride gets in the way between us and our union with Christ. And he says in verses 9 and 10, he gives us the pardon. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, why does he say that in the midst of it? What he's saying is when you come to realize what you're missing You should grieve over that so it turns you in the other direction. What you're missing is intimacy. You're missing the marriage with God that he designed for your relationship and my relationship to be that connection. And when you see how beautiful, how wonderful it is to be so connected to God that his life is in you and your life is in him then our sin does cause us to grieve because we're missing out and because we're offending the one who loves us so immeasurably. The Old Testament, God put it this way in the book of Jeremiah. He said, Jeremiah 2, verses 12 and 13, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Grieve, just like James says. For my people have committed two sins. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, the waterfall of grace. And instead, they have carved out cisterns, water containers for themselves, broken cisterns that can contain no water. God wants to fill your life with his grace. But grace has to flow downhill. We have to humble ourselves before the Lord. And understand that the battles, the desires that battle within us are counterfeit. Understand that lust is the counterfeit for love. Covetousness is the counterfeit of trust. When we expose the false things in our own heart, when we see that pride really is self-worship and it's keeping us from intimacy with God, then we can turn from him and say, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me, Change me. And the good news is, no matter where you are, no matter how bad you've messed up or I've messed up, grace is greater than our pride. It can set us free and draw us close right here today. And your life can be refreshed with an overflowing abundance of God's grace. Today is a day to allow the Lord to work on our hearts, to surrender to the authority, to the sovereignty, to the grace of God. In just a couple of moments, we're going to celebrate communion together. It's the common meal of the bread of life and the cup of Christ that represents our marriage together with Jesus Christ. It is a call to draw close, to turn from the things that separate us, 
and to come together as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters, to be refreshed by his grace. So what do we do with that? If, if you're like me and you found some things in your own life that you needed to turn from, here are some steps to remember as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. We are first of all to acknowledge our sin and pride for what it is. Don't make excuses. Just say, Lord, you see my heart and I repent. I turn from it. Forgive me for speaking against others. Help me to ask forgiveness not only of you, but of them. Confess ways that you've tried to take God's rightful place in your own heart through pride, through planning, through doing things independently of God. Confess of those things. And then submit to God's authority and ownership over your life. Praise God for who he is and for the forgiveness and grace that he offers. And then make a determination, Lord, that I want to demonstrate my love for you by loving others. Expressing that in a practical way. And when you fail, as you will, as I will, remember that his grace is greater. That waterfall of his presence, of his goodness, is designed to refresh your heart and life. And that is our prayer for each one of you here today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, would you pour out your grace on us? Lord, help us to see areas in our life where we're outside of your will, where we're in conflict with you. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to turn from that and to trust in you, to trust in the greatness of your grace. Lord, prepare our hearts to come into your presence right now. Reveal sin that is in our own hearts so that we can confess it before you and be cleansed. And then, Lord, would you do a work in each and every heart here today, Lord, filling them with the joy of being united with you. Lord, for those who do not yet know you, today, would you just call them to faith in you? Give them the courage to turn from trusting in themselves, trusting in the fact that, that they hope they're good enough to instead placing all that they are fully, on Jesus Christ. Well, thank you for what you're going to do in our hearts. Lead us right now, Lord, to your cross and change us, we pray in Jesus' name.